Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. We are back in our study in Genesis. Um, the last uh, couple of Wednesday nights, actually, technically, uh, the last three, uh, two were recent, and then one was far. Uh, Nathan taught, so he taught chapter 37, and then a two part series on chapter 38. So we're going to be picking up in chapter 39. But I want to pick, pull in a few things, and how, if you think about God's plan, aren't you glad that He is sovereign, that He is truly in charge? Now, that truth is often the hardest one for us to hold on to, is it not? If we're honest, like intellectually we might know that. But practically in our everyday living, when the wheels fall off the wagon, when life goes a complete opposite direction of what we want or hoped for or expected, that suddenly God's sovereignty seems to be hard to find. They're like, wait, 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 you know, this isn't part of God's plan. And, and I hope we can see some of that tonight, even in, in chapter 39 here, but I am grateful for the sovereignty of God, and I you know, ask you to pray along with me that we would, as the Scripture says, apprehend that, <laughs> that we would hold on to it tightly. Um, as you think about chapter 38, uh, the last two messages on chapter 38, much of what was established in the law under Moses, as Nathan had mentioned, was already being practiced in the Jewish culture, or, or at this point, the pre-Jewish culture, now, prior to the giving of the law. And this was passed down through oral tradition. And so we, we do get to see the sovereign plan of God as we look back and we're like, oh, here's the law, here's the description of it, but it was already being practiced back here. God was laying the foundation for it. So that Again, we would be reminded this was always his plan A, and it wasn't some like, oops, got to account and fix that mess. No, he was superintending all the pieces and the processes and lives all throughout history to get to that particular point, even to the point what we see in chapter 38, which seems like this totally weird, bizarre, disconnected story in the middle, stuck between 37 and 39, the story of Joseph's life, in essence. But there was a point, and I really love the fact that Nathan took the time to teach through that. We kind of wrestled through it together, like, ah, should we, should we not? And I'm glad that he, he made, made that passionate plea to go forward on second half, and that kinsman redeemer. And uh, I also like just the historical pieces that it was mentioned, that it took 10 generations 
to fulfill the requirements of the law for David to become the king of Israel. As you look through all those pieces, those missing pieces, the Lord had begun unfolding his plan even through the ungodly life of Judah and Tamar. So it looks like a mess, a train wreck, like, whoa, nothing's going to come out of that that's good. And it just kind of ends, the story there. And we don't see it till much, much later. Really, the fruit of the foundation of what God was laying there. From beginning to end, the grace of God was and still is working. Amen? In Genesis 38, we see the justice of God. However, we all see God's plan of grace unfolding. From Adam and Eve to the marriage of Joseph and Mary, all humanity needs that kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer, redeemer was revealed. As one born of a woman and yet born of God, Jesus fulfills the lineage needed to redeem all mankind. He was fully God, fully man, and his blood met the requirements of the law to satisfy the debt I owed, that we owed. A pure, spotless Lamb of God. And so we do see this foreshadowing, as it were, of God's redemptive plan in Genesis chapter 38 through this mess of a story, this piece of history. And also the price that is paid for those who attempt to thwart or reject God's plan. I mean, there is some serious consequences that came out of that. And even thinking in, in relation to you and I, for the person who rejects the Redeemer is found to be guilty of the law of Moses and the law of grace. And death is the price to be paid. So as the kinsman redeemer, Jesus is, and I, I'm just going to quote some of the things that Nathan mentioned, which, well, like he said in his message, just really, ah, it's so good, right? It's so good. Jesus, as the kinsman redeemer, he is the prophet before Moses, the priest after Melchizedek, the champion like Joshua, the offering in place of Isaac, the king from the line of David, and the wise counselor above Solomon, to name just a few. So now as we move into Genesis chapter 39, we see further foreshadowing. And really this is the picture and the image of Christ. And the history of Joseph begins back in chapter 37, so we'll do a little bit of review. And as Nathan taught through that, he spoke of, of, of the favoritism and divisions existing between Jacob and now known as also as Israel, but also between Joseph and his brothers. Again, I was talking about our service. I was so glad that he really camped on, on the, or stayed away from this kind of, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, I can't think of it now. Okay, um, the whole idea that mo the motive behind um, Joseph's life experiences, um, that they're, they're making, some people are attempting to make the Scripture say something that it doesn't say. Why Joseph did what he did, we don't know. Why his brothers got angry, we have some like, good ideas, we know that. But the end result is where the Scripture is silent, so should we, Right? And I love the fact that he said, because really at the heart of it, at the heart of it, it's not the why that was important. 
It's what was God's plan being unfolded? What was God preparing in advance? We need to focus on that. So again, really happy about that. The division between the father and son uh, and his sons begins with the coat of many colors or the tunic of many colors, perhaps that long-sleeved robe, uh, possibly symbolizing royalty or the role of the favored firstborn that really perhaps his intention now was to pass off the inheritance of the firstborn to Joseph because, again, of his favoritism, the rejection of Reuben and uh, Levi and Simeon um, and the, the other daughters or sons of the concubine. But this, this robe becomes really the, um, the calling card of Joseph. And whatever the motivations of his heart were, uh, it matters not. But matters, uh, but, but Israel seems to consider the others unworthy of this birthright. And so he bestows on his son this beautiful coat. It creates more division already. Matters only get worse when Joseph provides the bad report. What was the bad report? We don't know. Just something was hinky and he passed it off to dear old dad. And that just deepened the divide between the brothers. And then Joseph has this these dreams, and he relates them to his brother, brothers. Was he being, you know, a, a prideful, arrogant, foolish young man? Again, we don't know. But we do know is God is laying the foundation for his plan. <clears throat> In the eyes of his brothers, Joseph is perhaps the spoiled favorite brother who has been unjustly offered the inheritance and the authority. <coughs> their sinful solution is to sell their brother into slavery for what? 30 pieces of silver, and this is a very important piece as we look at the broader context of Scripture. This is where chapter 39 picks up. And if you want to read along, we're going to read a little bit, and then we're going to talk a little bit. Read a bit, talk a bit, read a bit, talk a bit. Verse 1, and it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So Joseph is sold to the Ishmaelites, which if you know a little bit of the history, that is distant relatives. Um, whether they knew he was a distant relative or not is not the point of the story. Nonetheless, they gladly buy him. He's a handsome 17-year-old of sound body and mind. He will make an excellent slave. <laughs> and so they purchase him. And because he's such a good-looking, fit guy, they sell him to a high-class master, Potiphar. And he was a high-ranking government official, and his influence extended deep into the government of Egypt. He had some serious pull. Now, Joseph could have been sold to anyone. Think about this. He could have been sold to anyone, but God's sovereign plan... <laughs> required a very specific path. 
the dreams or prophecy of Joseph mentioned in chapter 37 had to be fulfilled. And in order to do that, it required some connection to the royalty. So this is where he starts. Now, I was talking with um, Liam and, and Joe Jansen before the service in just thinking about all the All the questions that arise when you look at this in the, in the context and say, okay, Joseph, from what we know, seems to be a righteous young man. The Scripture doesn't tell us otherwise. And yet, he's unjustly pulled out of his family and sent off, and this seems like the worst possible circumstance ever in life. Can you imagine being 17 years old, thrown into a cistern, a pit, later be drugged out, half naked, just basically with your underwear on, and then by your family sold to another group of people and then eventually transported to a foreign country where you don't know the language. And it makes, I, I have to say, like, Lord, why? <laughs> why in the world would you do this? Why would you allow this to happen? And, and it brings me back to, the, um, the, what, 2021, I think it was, when we were studying through um, the book of Job, or is it maybe 2020? Did Job get an answer for the why? He never does. He never, now we know the answer, partially, partially that, you know, Satan came and asked for, hey, you know, it's just like, he's your boy. That's why he's, he follows you. And God says, well, let's, let's give that one a try. <laughs> let's find out what really is the case. But outside of that, we don't really have the why. What we really need to focus on is the who. I know I can get, up, I can get hung up on the Why? But we need to remember the who, and I hope as we go through this tonight that that's where we end is on the who. Who is at the center of the history and the story? Who is at the center of the purpose and the plan that is being unfolded? So he's sold into slavery. Uh, to be certain, Joseph is experiencing a great injustice. The circumstances of his life were not, necess were not necessarily a result of sin, and thus the discipline of the Lord, um, this bit of history is less about why Joseph was sold into slavery, but more about how he responded and who he responded to. And this is what the Lord desires for our focus to be, the focus of our lives, the how and not the why. Today, we may find ourselves in a life circumstance that is not of our choosing, and the question we have to ask, or we ought to ask, is how are we going to respond? As I said earlier, when the wheels fall off the wagon, when the plan that we so carefully crafted for our life unravels at every seam, what then? Who or what will we look to? Verse 2 gives us the insight into Joseph's life. The Lord was with Joseph. 
So he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now, no other detail is provided to us. We don't know if Joseph experienced any bitterness or hatred or depression or hopelessness for a season. We, it just, there's just no narrative there. But what we do know, by the, by the time the Lord has the writers write the history, what we do know is that Joseph, now in this place, in captivity, as a 17-year-old boy, it is said the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. What is clear is that at some point, Joseph chose to trust the Lord. How do we know this? Well, that's because of verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. This phrase, I mean, I, I was like, gosh, there's, there's something here I'm missing. Like, I understand when I read this in the English, it says the Lord was with Joseph. Of course he's with Joseph. He, he is with his children all the time, right? We, we can't shake him, <laughs> right? We can't lose him. And, you know, it's like, uh, it's not like Peter Pan where our shadow can come unraveled, right? No, we have Christ attached to us, in us, dwelling within us at all times. The Lord was with Joseph, but I love that here in the Hebrew, coupled with this idea, this phrase also means being together or with the help of. So what it's saying here is that the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph was working together and with the help of the Lord. He is cooperating with the plan of the Lord. That's you and I, or at least how we ought to be. When, when, when it all is a mess, our eyes ought to be saying, okay, wait, I know the character and nature of God. I know His promises. I, I know what His Word says regarding my life as His child. Therefore, I can work, I can cooperate, join together with the help of the Lord in fulfilling His purposes in this life circumstance. Despite the injustice of life, Joseph chose to work together with the Lord, and with the Lord's help, he becomes a successful man. It wasn't just an increase in his social status or wealth. It was successful because his faith was not only intact, but thriving. I'm, I'm sad to say that the, sometimes when I've gone through really, really difficult times in life, that I would say, well, my faith is intact. <laughs> but I would be hard-pressed to say, oh, my faith was just thriving. <laughs> but that's what God desires for us, isn't it? To thrive. And this is why we see so many pictures in Scripture regarding the pressing, the testing, the, the, the smelting of, of gold and silver, that through pressure and intense heat, something beautiful and glorious comes out of it. For even just in a daily life of the Jewish people, pressing olives. Uh, it was super neat. I'm really excited for some of you that are going to Israel uh, this coming year. Uh, I, I hope that you're able to go um, maybe to like Nazareth Village 
or at least to one of the sites and actually watch them press olives. And you, they take the olives, they put them in this big trough, and there's this huge stone wheel, and there's this little donkey that's hooked to the, the arm, and it just rolls the wheel, and this huge, heavy stone wheel just crushes the olives, pits and all, just to a pulp. And when they're just down to the last grainy little bits, then they scoop them up, they put them in bags, and then they put them under these huge, huge beams with weights on them, and it squeezes them, and it presses out the olive oil. And the result of that is this beautiful ointment, this beautiful flavor, this, the ability to produce light, it, it, it affects, the olive oil affects every part of the Jewish culture and their life from that olive oil. It's used in worship. It's used in medicine. It's used in perfumes. It's used in their, their bread and their meals. It, every aspect to light their homes. But it came through a lot of crushing and pressing. Joseph thrived in that crushing and pressing. Verse 3, now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant and he made him overseer of his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned to Joseph's charge and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. So blessed was Joseph by the hand of God that it bled over into the life of the ungodly. <laughs> so much so that Potiphar is in a place where when he comes home, the only thing he's thinking about is, I guess I just got to eat. I wonder what I want to eat. <laughs> That's the only thing he had to concern himself with. Like, what am I going to eat? I know it's going to be great because Joseph's got it covered. <laughs> The hand of God poured out blessing upon Joseph, and that blessing flowed out upon Potiphar. Isn't this a beautiful picture of how our lives ought to be? As God perhaps puts us in the press, <laughs> right? That as we look to Him, as we cooperate, join together with Him, with His help, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, as we heard this last Sunday um, from 1 Corinthians, as we do that, how God's blessing then just leaches out, pours out, leaks out from every aspect of our life and is a blessing upon the ungodly. As the Scripture would say that they would see the good works and turn and glorify our Father in heaven. How beautiful is that? Now, is that how I always see it? 
know. I'm guessing you're just like me. That when those hard time comes, I'm like, man, this is awesome. This is the best thing ever. I'm, God is just crushing me to make a beautiful perfume, a lovely ointment, light for the world, savory food. No, I'm just like, hey, will you stop pressing on me? <laughs> I had enough. <laughs> Can't you see it's kind of leaking out of the wrong part? See, Joseph remembered the character, nature, and promises of God. He likely remembered the messages from those dreams. He knew God's faithfulness and grace shown to his father, Israel, and perhaps those of his grandfather and great-grandfather. Do you and I recall the character, nature, and promises of God in hardship? Do we remember his past faithfulness, knowing he remains faithful even when I am not? Joseph clearly remembered the nature and character of God, and this confident knowledge provoked him to act in obedience and wisdom in circumstances, all circumstances. As Ryan was teaching this last Sunday regarding the Holy Spirit, it's it's not enough that we remember the past faithfulness of God. We have to act upon the truth of that, and we ought to act with expectancy. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within us? That He is the power of God? The power of God dwelling in us to display the works of God for the glory of God. Since we believe that, we should expect God to do amazing things. To live as we believe that the Father has gifted us with His Spirit and the Spirit is present within us. His presence ought to be that constant reminder of His love, power, and purpose in our lives. Our circumstances at times may lead us to believe that those circumstances are lacking purpose. Have you experienced that? A circumstance of life that you say, how in the world is this producing the purposes of God? It also might lead us to believe that the Lord doesn't love us. And that we have no power to bring about change. But who is dwelling within us? The Holy Spirit. See, that couldn't be further from the truth. The purpose of, God's, of God in Joseph's life remained the same. What? To demonstrate His grace, faithfulness, and plan of redemption for all who would believe. God's love didn't cease to be expressed to Joseph. And thus, in Joseph, God's power was displayed in faithful obedience. So I, I, I definitely can say, if you haven't already kind of thought about it for a second, Joseph's life serves as that kind of rock-solid example of Romans 8:28. You know this. And we know that God causes what? All things to work together 
for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Why? Because those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is happening to Joseph? As we, as we look farther into this, I think we'll see he's being conformed into the shadow, the image of the sun. Are you and I looking at our difficulties with an eye toward the Lord? Are we looking up or are we looking down? Do we trust that His purposes are being fulfilled in working for good in His glory, for our good in His glory? As he did with Joseph, the Lord knew us before time began. Again, this is one of those pieces like I, my little tiny brain can't lay hold of it. He knew everything, the words I'm going to speak tonight, before one of my days began. He knows our circumstances. He knows the desires he has to use us, to transform us, to conform us to the image of the Savior. He has called, justified, and will glorify us in His time. For Joseph, the time of testing is not over. <laughs> we pick it up now in verse, uh, verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, good-looking young guy. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, <coughs> and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. Now, he's saying this to Potiphar's wife. <coughs> and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. <coughs> How then? Could I do this great evil and sin against God? I think what we can see here is the deceitfulness of temptation and sin. The deceitfulness of temptation and sin. <clears throat> do you realize or do we realize that the enemy will never rest? He will not rest until that day when God says, it's all over. Until that day, he never rests. Scripture says he roams to and fro, right? Throughout the world, looking for what? Some morsel to devour. <laughs> and especially when we are living by faith. But Joseph once again chooses righteousness over cultural pressures. Now, this is a big deal in our culture right now, right? Lots of compromises being made within the church. And, and I, I use that term cautiously. Lots of cultural compromises being made. Let me explain. So, in Joseph's circumstance, for a wife or husband to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage was not uncommon in the Egyptian culture, especially within, even what they know historically, within noble or royal families. 
the reality is, is that Joseph is a slave. He is a piece of property to be used as someone desires to use it. They were, they were not necessarily seen as human. It would not have been unseemly for her to demand sexual activity from a slave. But this was not the experienced or expected practice of those who followed the Lord of all creation. The God Almighty, despite what Judah did in Genesis chapter 38, what his forefathers did with concubines, God indeed intended sex to be limited to what? A man and a woman in marriage. Joseph didn't give in to this deceitfulness or temptation of sin because he knew the heart of God. The cultural pressure, can you imagine, again, he's a young guy, and the culture would say, well, this is, there's nothing wrong. I mean, you're just fulfilling your role as a, a slave, as a servant. No big deal. How do we know this? I mean, he even says it there at the end of uh, verse 9. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He wasn't declaring that he was sinning against his master necessarily. Yes, there is some implication there. But ultimately, he knows the sin is against who? God's designed order of things. That was the great sin. Because Joseph knew nothing good was going to come out of that compromise. Do, you, do we understand that's how we get far down the road? Uh, you've probably heard me say this before. I, there, there is a song uh, by Third Day. It's a slow fade. I don't know if you've heard it before. It's a slow fade when black and white turns to gray. Daddies don't crumble in a day. Mommies don't crumble in a day. Right? Pastors don't crumble in a day. No, it's, it's one compromise, no matter how small and how acceptable by the culture, one compromise that leads to the next, that leads to the next, that leads to the next, and then one day you wake up in the morning and you're like, whoa, I am in a pit of my own making. How did I get there? One little piece at a time. This ought to be our response. As, as he says there, how could I do this great evil? Do we believe that all sin is a great evil? <laughs> what, what is the, according to God's word, what is the penalty of sin? Death. Is it like different levels of painful death? <laughs> he just gives one. Right? He's like separation from the Father for eternity. That's as bad as it gets. And that's bad. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of the living God, right? That's what this word says. Terrifying. Soul crushing. 
we need to see any sin as a great evil. It might then keep us from it, right? Perhaps, but also it's a great sin, a great evil against the one who loves us. Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. This is the persistence of temptation and sin. The enemy will persist. He is looking for a chink, a little gap in the armor, is he not? One little weakness that he can exploit in our lives. And our responsibility is actually quite simple. God made it very clear. I was talking with someone today. It's not like God made it really complicated for us to understand. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And when you are near me, when you're abiding with me, everything else fades away. For some of you, for some of us that uh, are married um, or maybe you're dating, think back when you first started seeing this beautiful woman or handsome man and you were with them and after maybe a few weeks or a month or whatever, all your thoughts are occupied with the glory of the boyfriend or the girlfriend, right? That's a, like a... That's a mud pie taste of what we might be able to grasp in that relationship with God. I, mean, I think about when, when I first came to Christ there in the spring of 1990, and it was like everything became really clear. My desire, the job that I was in, and the, the future that that was going to provide for me, the financial security and, and financial independence, I saw it for so clearly, like, God, you can't, I cannot be trusted with that kind of money. I'm, I'm dangerous. I'm dangerous with that kind of money. I need to run from that kind of money. How long did you think that lasted? How long did it last for you? <laughs> the persistence of sin is ever before us. The more dedicated to the Lord we are, the more likely we are to experience opposition and temptation. How do we know this? 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what did Joseph do? And, and there's just two little things he, he, that are mentioned in that verse. First, he did not listen. He paid no attention to her voice. Who was his master? It was Potiphar. At the end of the day, that was the only voice that mattered. His masters. How about you and I? Does our master's voice the only one that matters to us? He did not listen. Philippians 4, 8, 9. Finally, brother, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is a good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Joseph's just like, I, I got a whole long list of good things to think about. <laughs> right? God is with me. I'm cooperating with his purpose and plan. He is blessing me. I've been given great responsibility and I'm enjoying a comfortable life. Why would I waste it for momentary pleasure? I won't even listen. 
I got enough good things to think about. He's filling his mind. He's occupying his day with pleasing his master. Occupied with the good things of God, including honoring his master or his employer. And whatever he did in word or deed was for the glory of who? God the Father. He gave no opportunity for the devil to have an inch of ground in his life. Furthermore, it says he would not be with her. Now, it's, it's in, the, in the biblical sense, but also just in the physical presence sense, because it's both used both there, to lie beside her or be with her. He's bringing a distinction. Listen, I'm not, I'm not going to have sex with you, and furthermore, I'm not even going to be in the house with you. What does the word says? It says, flee sexual immorality. Do we know what that word flee means? I love it because it brings to mind military service. Now, if you were a Marine, there's no such thing as retreat. There is merely advancing to the rear. But that is the idea that there is an enemy that I can no longer overcome they are more powerful. They are going to take my life if I remain present. Therefore, in fear of my soul and life, I run to my help. Is that how we treat sin? Sometimes I just, I'm, I'm honest. <laughs> I, that's not how I treat sin sometimes. But this is what Joseph did. Not even going to come close. There is nothing profitable in that conversation or in the presence of that person. It was said to me as a younger believer, and I've shared it with many people over the years, time plus opportunity. Time plus opportunity. These two small things are all that is needed for sin to find nourishment. Time plus opportunity. How often do we allow time for temptation and to allow space for temptation in our thoughts? Allowing it to move from opportunity and give birth to sin. These two things Joseph would not give into. He heeded the words of Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he what? Prospers. Have you ever been with a group of non-believers and experienced, like, significant foul language? You know, listen, you know, in military and law enforcement circles, and, uh, listen, this is just, this is the truth. When our moral standard is no longer culturally acceptable and we buy into that, by nature our language changes. But if you've ever been in that situation, 
and you're there and, and people are using all sorts of profanity, it's just, you know, as their casual language, how do you react? Well, you might react with shock. Like, whoa, the look on your face. It's like an, you've been insulted. Or perhaps you want to fit in and you succumb to this pressure and you begin to participate. Or, or there's the other side of it, or maybe you're just like so righteously indignant that you become that kind of annoying, weird, and awkward Christian. We, we shouldn't be people that expect non-believers, those who don't follow Jesus, to do or be something they are incapable of doing or being. So I, I do have the privilege of being with people that do not follow Christ and, and, and get to share my life with them. And sometimes when they say things, oh, and they're like, oh, sorry about that, I'm like, listen, this, this was part of my life. You be you. I'm going to be me, and we'll be okay, right? I'm not condemning them, because I, I, how could I condemn someone for something they do not believe and, in fact, are incapable of believing apart from the gift and presence of the Holy Spirit? Now, does it mean I participate in it? No. To the contrary. But I ought to be gracious We ought to not be judgmental, weird, or awkward. We ought to be, as the Scripture says, be the light of Christ. But we don't have to shine the light directly into their eyes. <laughs> right? That's why I love, you know, what it says in Psalm 119, 105. All right? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Where is the light? <laughs> it's like right down here, right? So that they can see the way to go. Now, you stick that light right in somebody. Have you ever done that camping with someone? Well, your kids have probably done it. If you like, just get the light out of my eyes. Come on, right? And that's what we become sometimes. We become that irritant rather than lighting the path and the feet that need to walk on the path. That's just a little side, little detour there. But Joseph lived in his way, his life in such a way as to shine the light of God, the glory of Christ, into this pagan household. And he would not be deterred by the temptation, by sin. But make no mistake, even as I mentioned before, even if we live a light, righteous life, we should expect trouble. Verses 11 through 18, now it happened on the day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, and I screamed. <clears throat> when he heard that I raised my voice, and he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. <coughs> So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me, and as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. This was the trap of the enemy. If he couldn't get him to compromise, it's a full frontal assault now. 
And you and I, like Joseph, need to be prepared for the full frontal assault. We live in a culture that is bit by bit, it seems more like leap by leap, degrading, reducing their desire for spiritual things. Like Joseph, you and I need to be ready and run rather than provide an explanation. Just run. As we will see in the remaining verses, Joseph trusts the Lord and leaves his life in the hands of the man who has seen his character. Who are we trusting our lives to? Who are we entrusting our character to? And he did this, Joseph did this for about 11 years. 11 years, Potiphar's life and wealth had been in Joseph's hands for more than a decade. And this wasn't lost on Potiphar. How do we know this? Verse 19. Now, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. Now, can anyone imagine what the normal penalty for attempted sexual abuse of your wife in the Egyptian culture would have been? By a slave. Instantaneous death. That was the standard of the day. Now, this has put Potiphar in an extremely awkward circumstance. The scriptures doesn't tell us anything whether or not he believed Joseph or believed his wife. Clearly, he was, he was, he was angry. He had to do something. But normally, it would have been right there at the doorway, going to stab you, lop your head off, whatever the method that, that was the most painful. We're going to end your life. He doesn't do that. He incarcerates him in the king's prison. Some, some believe perhaps this was a, the prison for political prisoners. So maybe like in our day, political prisoners had a more cushy jail life. right? I don't know. But nonetheless, Joseph doesn't get... What the law demanded, he gets mercy. He gets grace. But the Lord, verse 21, was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. And it's just like, reset, gonna start over. I know who my confidence is. I know who my hope is. This situation, it was out of the fire and into the frying pan. Don't care. I know there is a solution and the only solution is to look up, not down and out. And so he continues as he did before, serving who? As unto the Lord. If we are live to live for righteousness, we ought to expect sinners to lie about us. However, we have an advocate, don't we? Uh, as uh, Brielle uh, last night, I can't remember if it was last night, this morning, asked, you know, hey, Dad, can I go to, to work with you? Uh, she's homeschooled right now, so... 
we have some freedom to do that. And it's like, well, can you do your homework and your schoolwork at the church, you know, without being supervised? Like, I can do that, Dad, great. So we're driving down, and we were talking about uh, different aspects of the Scripture, and, um, and, and I was relating this, and I was just saying, you know, we have, just like Joseph, we have an advocate. And she's like, yeah, we have, like, a lawyer, Dad. I'm like, yes, we do. <laughs> the best one, Right? The one that stands before the Father interceding for us. And no one can be smarter than him. The devil comes up and and that's already a lost case. No, that's my child. I've covered that. I've taken care of that. That one's mine. Joseph's character could not be tainted because it was established, built, and maintained by the power of God and his Holy Spirit. And it's because of this Joseph just picks up where he left off. He continues to serve as unto the Lord. And again, his life proves the point. If the Lord is with us or if we are working together with the help of the Lord, whatever we will do will prosper. Again, let me make the distinction. I'm not talking about prosper according to our plans. Prosper according to God's plan, His purpose, and His timing. Because this comes to play in the next several chapters. Let's be careful lest our expectations take hold of the purpose and lead us away from God's plan, trusting in Him and in His timing. Because if we do that, I guarantee you from personal experience, you will be disappointed. (laughs) You will get frustrated. You will get angry. Hopefully you won't do like I did for eight and a half years and crawl in a hole. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll eat some worms. Right? You know, here's the thing is, many of us read this piece of history, and and it is that. This is factual history. Uh, You know, again, if you've not watched or were not here for Sunday night for the um, Encountering Our Culture series, on revisionist history, I want to encourage you. There's some great material in there, even as it relates to the Bible. But this, what we are reading here is not a story, as the world defines that. A cute little fable that has a little message tied to it. No, this is factual history. Is this historical piece really about Joseph? No, it's not. The Lord is at the heart and the soul of this historical narrative. As we consider the life and the actions of Joseph, we should not miss what is mentioned at the beginning, the foreshadowing, the picture within the picture. I hope we haven't missed the imagery of Jesus. Joseph was a favored son. He was a prophet He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He lived a righteous life in the face of evil. He was unjustly accused and punished, yet God had a plan to restore his life and he would continue to faithfully serve others and especially those trapped in sin. Joseph is that type and that picture, the shadow of Christ. We say this because Joseph was not perfect, was he? There is no man perfect except the man God, Jesus Christ. But even as the moon reflects the light of the sun, 
And this is what we are to be. Imperfect as we are, we are to be a daily reflection of the Son that other might, others might see His light in the darkness and find their way home, find redemption, because that is where this story is going. Joseph's life, the rest of his story is not settled. We've got, I think it's six more chapters, seven more chapters to get to the end of his life. And from beginning to end, it's a picture of God unfolding his plan and revealing the character and nature of the Messiah. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.